coming to you from the Barrier Island Center on Virginia's eastern shore. This is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. In each episode, we try to give you a different perspective of life on the eastern shore, whether it's about an occupation or simply stories of what people who have lived here have done in their careers. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Sharing the Mic is a monthly podcast with each new episode appearing the first of each month. Today's guest is Dr. Greg Kimball. While not from the Eastern Shore, he is an individual who is very well known at the Barrier Islands Center. He is Director of Public Services and Outreach at the Library of Virginia, where he is responsible for research services, exhibitions, programs, and education at that institution. He holds a Ph.D. degree in history from the University of Virginia and a Master of Library Science degree from the University of Maryland College Park. Greg is the author of American City, Southern Place, A Cultural History of Antebellum Richmond, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2000, and has published numerous articles, reviews, and essays on African-American history, traditional music, public history, and the American South. Dr. Kimball was a curator and historian at Richmond's City Museum, the Valentine, for almost 10 years, developing and curating numerous exhibitions. He was the chief historian during the Valentine's restoration and interpretation of the Tredegar Ironworks, a national historic landmark which is now the headquarters for the Richmond National Battlefield Park, National Park Service. Dr. Kimball also performs widely in a variety of traditional styles, from blues to Hawaiian music, and he is involved in many musical endeavors, including the program committee for the Richmond Folk Festival. Dr. Kimball is a veteran of the United States Army and lives in New Kent County, Virginia. Greg frequently combines his interests in music and history, creating unique programs combining live performance with images and recorded sound. He has collaborated on historical markers, tours, educational programs with historical and cultural organizations, and has performed at the Richmond Folk Festival, the DC Blues Festival, the Landmark Theater with the Richmond Symphony, the Tinner Hill Blues Festival, the Hampton Acoustic Blues Revival, and Colonial Williamsburg's Hennage Auditorium, to name a few. Greg Kimball, welcome to Sharing the Mic. Looking forward to it, thanks for having me on. To get started, Prior to attending the University of Virginia, you served in the United States Army. What was your job in the Army? I was in supply, which meant that I went to AIT, which is your school, basically, uh, at Fort Lee, which was really the first time I had ever come to Virginia. And then from there, I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and on to Germany. Our paths could have crossed if we'd been in the Army at the same time. I ended up in uh, Gelnhausen, Germany, and later Frankfurt. Um, your academic background was in 19th century history. How did your interest in music unfold? Um, it really, the music is more of an avocation. Uh, I started playing guitar when I was very, pretty young, maybe 10 or 12. 
and uh, played banjo, other instruments, um, you know, played folk music, but also like a lot of people in my generation, I listened to Jimi Hendrix and, uh, and Cream and all of that. Uh, I had an older sister who was a, a folky, so I heard Dylan and all that music as well. So that was just something that was a continuity through my entire life, uh, separate for a long time, separate from my uh, historical work. Are you totally self-taught or did you train on any particular instrument formally? I'm totally self-taught. Uh, I wow. learned the way most folk musicians do, uh, learning from much better <laughs> players than myself and uh, just picking things up here and there. How did you first connect with the Barrier Islands Center? Uh, during the planning for the arts and music on the farm, and Sally uh, Dickinson, who uh, you know well, I'm sure, there at the, at the Barrier Islands Center got in touch with me and with John Lohman, who was at that time the state folklorist, and asked if we'd be interested in helping with uh, booking the acts and, and uh, doing some work with workshops during the festival. I see. Were it at that time, just so that I can get some chronology straightened out here in my mind, uh, were you at the Valentine Museum at that point or had you already gone to the Library of Virginia? I had already gone to the Library of Virginia. And I think the reason Sally uh, uh, contacted me is by that time I had started to do uh, a number of programs that connected my historical research with music. So, for instance, I did a, a series of five uh, historical markers around the state related to the uh, Virginia blues tradition. I was also working with the Richmond Folk Festival, which I still do. So, um, you know, I knew John very well, and uh, she asked us to come on board as a team. Wonderful, wonderful. You've performed and been the MC at Art and Music on the Farm since the beginning in 2009. What appeals to you about this particular festival? There's so many things. Uh, one is that it does feature people who are coming out of specific Virginia traditions, what most people would call folk music. Um, sometimes people would call it traditional music or roots music. Uh, and that I think is really important is to keep those uh, musical styles uh, fresh. So we have performers from Southwest Virginia playing some of the classic fiddle tunes. Uh, we have gospel groups, um, you know, real variety of kinds of music that uh, originated here in Virginia. And the other thing about it, well, not the only thing, but one of the other things, it's just an incredible site. Uh, beautiful, uh, rural, kind of pastoral site there. And it really lends itself well to this kind of an outdoor festival. And the final thing is I, I love doing the workshops. And uh, these are this is a way for us to get people up close and personal with the artists and not just hear their music, but find out where the music comes from. Uh, those are really important to me. And I, they're usually a big hit at the festival. In your planning process, do you set out for a particular goal for any one year to have a particular theme or do you just kind of want to mix it up and give people a variety of things to experience? It's really to mix it up. Um, the workshops often will have themes, which are really easy, really, to put together because, you know, we do have a mix of artists. Uh, one of the things, for instance, uh, that you might, we might want to feature is if we have several uh, fiddle players from different traditions. 
bringing them together to talk about like how are their uh, styles different? Uh, why are those styles different coming out of different parts of the state or a particular tradition? So um, usually it's really just to get a variety and then we kind of build the workshops from there. I see. Since you've been around since art and music on the farm began, can you comment on the growth of the Barrier Island Center as a viable cultural institution? Absolutely. And I've also done a number of other kinds of programs for the center. The festival itself has grown tremendously, not only in the number of people who, have, uh, who attend, but I think really in the quality of the presentation. Also, I, you know, I'm pretty familiar. Every year I come, I have a museum library background, so I always go and look at the exhibits. And, uh, you know, they're just tremendous and have improved dramatically uh, from the beginning of when we first, uh, first started doing the festival. I also, you know, think that um, the expand, I saw the expansion into the education building, uh, which originally was a building that was a separate part of the of the uh, county farm for, for African-Americans, actually. And so that's been rebuilt. Uh, the, the kitchen now is used for demonstrations. So the offerings there have really expanded significantly since I've been working with the center. Well, you answered my next question, which was, as a former curator and his, historian at the Valentine Museum in Richmond, what are your thoughts about the Barrier Island Center exhibits? And you've spoken to that. Yes, they, they have, uh, I think. And, and the other thing I really like that they do, not only the exhibits have really uh, evolved and are much more richer, I think, now than they've ever been, uh, but they've also, uh, I love the films that the center makes. Uh, you know, they, they look at these really distinctive traditions uh, from the Eastern shore and highlight those. And uh, I think that's also a really part of, important part of their mission. I also know they do a lot of uh, programming with uh, K-12 children, and that's an important part of what they do. Right. Yeah, the films really excite me. And I interviewed uh, Jim Spiona, who makes those films uh, last year or two years ago, actually. And uh, I just think he's rather incredible the way he just embraces his subject matter. And it comes so alive. Tell us about your role as Director of Public Services and Outreach at the Library of Virginia. So my division at the library is really where the library connects to the public. So that can happen in our reading rooms where people are coming to do research. Many of them are doing family history research, uh, which is one of the things that we support with workshops. Uh, we also do a lot of programming with authors, um, various things that relate to Virginia history and culture. And of course, we also have exhibitions at the library. Right now, we're uh, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the, of the library's uh, founding in 1823. So we have a special exhibit specifically for that called 200 uh, Years, 200 Stories. One of the things I'm curious about is all of the artists that you bring in, is there an Eastern Shore music tradition uh, that you have discovered and uh, explored at all? Yes, um, I would say probably more of a Chesapeake uh, tradition. So, for instance, we've had the Northern Neck Shanty Singers, 
who sing in a, uh, a tradition of the Menhaden fishers, fishermen. And that's something that that's definitely a Chesapeake tradition. Definitely a Chesapeake Bay tradition, not necessarily a Chesapeake city. Yeah. Oh, I should have. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm using a shorthand here, <laughs> but yes, the Chesapeake Bay tradition. Um, I've done presentations. Some of these traditions, unfortunately, just don't exist anymore. Uh, I was, for instance, I did a program recently at the Barrier Island Center where we listened to field recordings of women singing while they are picking crabs. So there are work, particularly some really strong work traditions uh, that are associated with the Eastern Shore and the Chesapeake Bay. Um, another person who's a fascinating person, and this is a frustration that those of us who study, uh, you know, traditional music have, uh, there's a fellow named uh, Southie Bell, who's often called Sud Bell, who's a legendary character, character on the shore. He's been written about pretty extensively, uh, but we don't have any of his music. Uh, it's, he was never recorded. Uh, he was a banjo player. And from some of the descriptions, we can get some sense of what he sounded like. Uh, but uh, certainly there was that kind of music, uh, fiddle banjo music that was going on on the shore. And you are also a writer. You've written a book uh, about the cultural history of Richmond. And I understand you're writing another one. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I wrote a book about called American City Southern Place. And as you say, it's about Richmond really in those 20 or so years right before the Civil War and what kind of a city it was. And, and this, I think, will resonate with people, uh, particularly on the Eastern Shore as well. Richmond was a, even though it was in the South and became the capital of the Confederacy, in many ways, it was more connected to the North than it was to the South. Uh, all of the trade primarily went through New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, rather than to the South. There was a big exception, and that was the slave trade. Um, so it had kind of a strange um, mix of culture. It also was very industrial, which is not what we think of, of when we think of a Southern city. So I think of when I'm thinking in the context of the shore, you might think about its relation to Baltimore, for instance which is you know, probably much closer historically than it was connected to Richmond. Uh, and those kind of spheres of culture and commerce that define places. The book I'm writing with a publisher right now is more connected to the music side of what I do. Uh, it's about a blind street singer named Jimmy Struther who was recorded in 1936 at the Virginia State Prison Farm. And he recorded a fairly large number of songs, about 13 songs. Uh, he was recorded by a very famous folklorist named John Lomax. And really it's his story. Um, born in Culpeper, Virginia, uh, blinded in an industrial accident. And then he becomes a medicine show uh, performer. And the other dramatic moment in the book is why he's in prison. He murdered his wife in 1935. Oh my. <laughs> yeah what 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 got you interested in in that particular in him say he really epitomizes um what people sometimes would call songsters or musicianers uh, uh itinerant musicians who were you know it'd be thousands of them traveling around playing and he also his repertoire was really deeply rooted in uh virginia uh and, and the other thing is he, he, 
his song choice, uh, because he was a street musician, he had to play just about anything uh, because that's how he made his living. So he did gospel. Yeah, it'd be exactly. He had to be versatile. So so he's uh, doing uh, sacred songs. He's doing work songs. He's doing blues. Uh, he sings one song that's a little bit scandalous <laughs> uh, in its uh, in its words. So uh, that was one thing that really struck me is that that this he was really the epitome of what you had to be to do this. And his songs have really uh, uh, gotten around. So Jefferson Airplane covered one of his songs, uh, sort of third hand actually. Uh, on uh, their album Volunteers. Um, Pete Seeger, Mike Seeger, you know, very famous in the folk room, covered his songs. So people knew about him, but they didn't really know anything about him as a person. And so part, a lot of my research was trying to figure out, well, who is this guy? And how did he become uh, the musician that he was? Once he was incarcerated, did he spend the rest of his life in jail? Uh, no. Um, in fact, he only spent about four and a half years in jail. Uh, he got a pardon from the governor. And uh, at that, that was one of the ways that I really found out about uh, things about him that I never would have otherwise known. Um, in those uh, letter, his pardon file that are here at the Library of Virginia, uh, he, he writes letters to the governor explaining his situation, talking about some of his relatives, and all of those things gave me a leads uh, that I could work back through, uh, in particularly in local communities where he was from, like Culpeper, and I found out much more about him. I actually found relatives of his, um, his the wife that he murdered, uh, Blanche Green was her maiden name, and I found, uh, I was able to contact her grandson. When do you expect this will be out? To the public. Academic publishing is a process. Uh, so I'm hoping, though, in 2024, uh, we'll, the book will arrive. Great. And again, what's the title of it? Well, right now it's called Searching for Jimmy Strother. And a little bit of the book is also really is I really want to reveal to people how you do this kind of work, because I'm the kind of person that loves to go to the places where things happened and find out if there's any local knowledge. And at the same time, I'm digging through archives uh, and meet, meeting local people and communities that help me understand the context of my story. So some of it is that. And also part of it is um, because I've known so many musicians, particularly people, uh, older, older musicians playing traditional music, um, you know, I, can, I weave that into the story as well. Well, it certainly sounds fascinating, and I'm sure the Barrier Island Center will have that book in their gift shop once it's out. Well, I I, I hope they will, and and uh, it's just another. I I hope I can go, come give a talk because um, it it really is a wonderful story. I'd have to say guitar. It's the instrument I've played the longest, and. Um, uh, I, I really do think it's probably my favorite. Uh, I started playing fiddle pretty late in life, and boy, it's a very difficult instrument to, to, to master. It's certainly a lot of fun, too. One of the things I love about playing traditional music is often you're playing with groups of people in very informal settings, and you get a sense of when you go to a jam, for instance, playing old-time music, uh, it's, it's a communal experience. 
and that's part of the culture of traditional music that's really important. Right. So I remember going up to the Archie Edwards Barbershop in D.C. Uh, and playing blues with those folks, uh, uh, playing with, uh, with John Jackson, who was a, a well-known old-time blues uh, player here from Virginia, uh, uh, down near his farm. You know, those are the experiences that really stick with me. Uh, not so much even performing, although I've done that too, playing festivals. Uh, but, but I really like it when you get to have that community experience. Right. Do you play any wind instruments? I don't. Um, Jimmy Struther called his music string music. <laughs> and that's pretty much <laughs> what I do. I play string music. Okay. Do you have a particular passion for any one style of music? Uh, again, the, the, I would say uh, early blues guitar is the thing that really got me into this. And like a lot of young people in the growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, I, I got there from listening to people like Eric Clapton, who was covering songs by some of these early blues artists from the 20s and 30s. So, you know, you'd listen to Crossroads and go, well, who's this Robert Johnson guy? <laughs> and, and so uh, those of us who were curious started to uh, find the few LPs. There really weren't many at the time, reissues of these recordings. And some of them, like me, started collecting the old 78 RPM records. Uh, because there really wasn't that that music wasn't really available then to us. Uh, today, you know, my kids grew up. Uh, most of this music is on the internet now. Uh, when we were coming up, it was kind. Of, you had to really work at finding a lot of this early music. Are there any musicians right now or groups that you feel are really up and coming that we should pay attention to? Yes, and one of the really interesting things that's been happening uh, is that, particularly in old-time music, which is kind of one of the root musics of, of country music, um, a lot of African-Americans have gone back, and, and young people, and have been recovering uh, that music. Uh, Rihanna Giddens is a good example. Uh, there was a group uh, that she was in with several other musicians, um, called the uh, North Carolina Chocolate Drops, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was a play on an earlier a band from the 30s called the Tennessee Chocolate Drops. Um, and, and they're really re, kind of reinventing that music, which did flow out of African-American culture to some large extent. So there are some artists like that that I really enjoy listening to who are bringing f you know, a fresh approach to some of the more traditional music. You have either performed in or attended many music festivals. Can you give us an idea of what perhaps some of your favorites are? So if folks are traveling around, you know, they might take some advice and go see something. Yeah. That, and, and they vary in the way they approach music and, and that not to say one's better than the other. Uh, the Blue Ridge Music Festival down in Ferrum, uh, which is uh, based out of the Blue Ridge Institute at Ferrum is if you want local, and to really hear what the local music sounds like in the Blue Ridge region, that's the festival. And there's a lot of other things going on. So they have coon dog races and, <laughs> and you know, local food, tractor demonstrations. It's, it is very local. And that's what I love about it. It's the real deal. I played the DC Blues Festival, which is a great blues festival. You know, DC has a fantastic 
blues scene. That's a, a really, really good festival. And, you know, I can't talk about this without talking about uh, Richmond Folk Festival, which you know, I'm on the program committee for. Uh, it's it's uh, it's one of the bigger festivals. Um, you know, we've mm-hmm. had crowds somewhere in the 150, 200,000 range, uh, but it brings together so many fantastic styles of music, not just American music either, but music from other um, world traditions. I, I really enjoy that one. The Virginia Folklife Program usually has a tent at the Richmond Folk Festival that specifically looks at Virginia traditions as well. This has been just fantastic talking to you. I want to thank you for your contribution to the Barrier Islands Center, and we look forward to many years to come of you participating and performing here on the Eastern Shore. We thank uh, everybody at that uh, um, at the center. They, they, they do such a great job of planning it. It's a huge event and, and really takes a lot of work to get up and running. I have to say just personally, I absolutely love the Eastern Shore. It is such a unique place in Virginia geographically, culturally. I I just look forward to coming out every year. And as you say, it just gets better and better. And let's hope that we get, uh, at some point, we're talking about the 25th year. Sure. Let's hope so. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Several years ago, Hampton Roads Public Media, WHRO, did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. The Coming of the Railroad. You're listening to Our Eastern Shore. The actual laying of railroad track on the Eastern Shore did not begin until the 1880s. They ran from Maryland down the peninsula to a new town named Cape Charles City. From the harbor there, passengers would board steamers to cross the Chesapeake Bay. New towns grew up around the railroad depots, and passengers were excited about the luxurious cars with dining and sleeping facilities. For local people, traveling to new cities and resorts became much easier. At first, there was but a single track. But at the turn of the century, a parallel track was laid, and locomotives moved up and down the peninsula at an impressive speed. By the 1950s, the elegant steam locomotives were being replaced by the less elegant but more powerful diesels. Sadly, the trains could not compete with motor vehicles in 20th century America. Yet there are still those who miss the mournful whistle of a night train on the eastern shore tracks. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Islands Center. Funding has been provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore. Sally Dickinson, Executive Director. Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager. Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development. Tracy Jones, Director of Education. The Barrier Island Center is located at 7295 Young Street in Machipongo, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to BIC Podcast at iCloud.com. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.